Te presentamos a Alex. Ella acaba de descubrir el centro de visión de Walmart. Ahora hago mis diligencias en un solo lugar. ¿Compras? ¿Lentes? Walmart. ¿Decoraciones? Walmart. Y lo mejor es que aceptan la mayoría de seguros, así que ahorro tiempo y dinero. Bienvenido a un cuidado de visión más fácil. Bienvenido a tu Walmart. Se aplican restricciones. Visita walmart.com para más detalles. Hello, welcome back to How to Win 2024. It's Thursday, February 29th. I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and I'm here with my co-host, Claire McCaskill. Hi, Claire. Hey, Claire. Oh, wait, no. Hey, Jen. <laughs> Hello. You can tell the Supreme Court decision has me discombobulated. Oh, my Lord. Also, happy New Year. Happy, no, not Happy New Year. Happy Leap Year. <laughs> I don't even know what year it is. Oh, my God. It's an election year. It's, it, it's, def yeah, it's most definitely an election year. And continuing with our strategy sessions that we are doing, Claire and I are going to first talk about the Supreme Court decision from yesterday on Trump's immunity case, highlight what the most recent primary results, South Carolina, Michigan, mean for the general election through our campaign strategy in Comsons. Yeah, we're going to talk also with our friend and former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland and former RNC Chair Michael Steele. We're going to do some Super Tuesday pre-gaming, and he's going to stick with us to spotlight what Mitch McConnell's announcement means for how to win 2024. Okay, so a lot of this has happened in the last two days. We're going to discuss this in our in our strategy session. If I were in the room, <laughs> it's like a game. If I were in the room in the Biden campaign comms war room and we just experienced a Supreme Court decision saying that they're going to hear the immunity case, they're not going to hear it until April 22nd, which means the Jan 6 trial is getting pushed way out. I would say do not get caught up in that. Do not get distracted by that. Trump was never going to be disposed of by any means other than voters throwing him out yet again in November. And I did find the decision very disheartening, though, Claire, because even this Supreme Court, I thought they would treat this case more seriously and try to deal with it more quickly and not play games. And it feels like they're playing games. Well, listen, this was a victory for Trump big time. The conservative majority of the court decided that he was not going to need to be tried before November. And everybody can try to dress this up or drag it out. But the bottom line is this decision means the only case that Donald Trump will face before November is what many think is the weakest case, which is the porn star case, which, right. by, by the way, is a weird phrase to be using for a guy who's been nominated for president three times, the porn star case in New York. So the conservatives politicized the court by doing this. There's no reason they had to take the case. They have further degraded the institution by entering this decision, how they did it, and most importantly, when they did it, and the fact that they kept the stay in place. So now we're looking at a trial that might not happen until September, October, and then the argument should be made that that would not be a good thing for Joe Biden, for Trump to be in trial in September and October. But what about Michigan? Yeah, so Michigan. So, you know, the Democratic results, Biden wins 81%, 618,000 votes, uncommitted 13 0.2 percent, 100,000 votes, basically. I feel like this was a win for Joe Biden and the Gretchen Whitmer operation. But tell me your view. Well, listen, you know, this the whole coverage of this just really irritated me. <laughs> In 2012, the last time we had an incumbent Democratic president, it was Barack Obama facing the voters in Michigan. He got the, uh, basically the same percentage as Joe Biden. The I know. Uncommitted voters were almost, you know, they were 10 something percent. All right? right. And the uncommitted voters, after a huge fight to get people to vote uncommitted, money was spent. Money was spent. They, they ran made. a campaign. They ran they a ran real campaign, a campaign to try to get people to do this. They got 13 percent. Yeah. So they got two points more 
than Barack Obama had against him in 2012. And by the way, in Tlaib's district, do you know what Biden got in Tlaib's district? 78%, 78% of the vote. And by the way, twice as many people voted against Donald Trump as voted against Joe Biden. Twice as many. Now, why wasn't that the frickin' headline? Right. I know. Right. Right. And and Nikki Haley went to that state once. She went one time to Michigan. And still, she's twice as big as uncommitted. Oh, somebody on Twitter said to me, well, but if Democrats could vote against Trump, well, all the better. That means some of the people voting against Trump are also Biden voters. Right, so if you exactly. combine all of that, they had a bigger turnout than 2012. There's never a huge turnout, a Democratic primary, when you have an incumbent president. There is yeah. no primary to speak of. So, I, I mean, this idea that somehow this shows fatal weakness. Now, I do think the Biden campaign was really smart in that they never tried to denigrate the people that were voting uncommitted. So they important. respected yes. their opinion. Yes. No one has said bad things about them. I'm not saying bad things about them. I think it's good. They had yeah. an opportunity to express their passion and the emotion that they feel around the situation in Gaza. I think all of us know this war has not been prosecuted in a way that any of our allies should prosecute a war. The civilian deaths are unacceptable. But having said that, Michigan was not a bad thing for Joe Biden. So I wish the media, including sometimes our own network, I know, would I know, stop I know. acting like it was. I know. And, 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 you know, the people, sometimes it's their own families, it's actual relatives in, that are in Gaza that have been killed, that this is a very sincere pain that voters are feeling. But I thought it was also helpful, encouraging that even the campaign is called Listen to Michigan, right? The campaign's not called Stop Joe Biden. Right. So there is a path for these voters to come back to the administration. Administrations always know this is a problem. They've always known that there's a lot of work to do. I mean, there's work to do writ large in this issue, right? They want to get to a ceasefire, uh, but political work to be done there. Okay, what about Michigan, South Carolina on the Republican side? I mean, I think Haley's right. She says there is a warning sign here for Trump. I think there is. He should be treated as an incumbent president because he says he is one. He says he's the president now. So everyone should be flocking to his side. And they're not flocking. He is not getting the numbers that you would expect someone to get. He's not getting near Biden's numbers. Biden is dominating. And he's got a Democrat running against him. And he's got third parties that are running against him. He is still dominating this process. He's dominating much more than Donald Trump. So yeah. I see trouble ahead for Trump folks unless... You know, he has a personality transplant. And, you know, there was a pretty decent turnout in Michigan. It wasn't huge, but it was certainly more than there was in 2012 when there was a really heated primary on the Republican side and obviously no primary on the Democratic side. Biden won Michigan, I'm talking about the general election now, by 150,000 votes. So if, you know, worst case scenario, 100,000 votes even if all of those people did not vote for Joe Biden, his margin is such that you could ride that out. The margin in 2016 for Trump was 11,000 votes. So usually that race, that state is very close. And remember, we have a Senate race in Michigan in November. So there'll be a lot of money and resources on the ground, a lot yep. of organization on the ground. Democrats have that, they have that state so wired yep. and they've had so many tough elections and they win them. They don't just win them, they crushed them. Gary Peters crushed in 2020. Biden did great in 2020. Whitmer won by 10 points. Like, they just know how to do this, and they have to do it every two years. And the Michigan Republican Party is, uh, it's, I mean, Michael Steele 
former head of the party is coming on to, you know, you can talk about like what the state of the Republican Party, states parties are, but Michigan is one of the worst. So I'm well, feeling good about that. I'm in the Biden war room. Michigan is a huge no priority bigger, but also like, and it's kind of true for all the early primary states. Biden has come out showing a better organization in each of these states than Trump. Yeah. So we ask who the 40 percent in South Carolina that voted for Haley. So we turn to the wizard and Karnacki is going to explain to us who he thinks that 40 percent is. I, I think the main way you can reconcile this is to recognize that these primaries are smaller, much smaller electorates than the general election. And the three that we've seen so far, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Michigan, all have rules that allow non-Republicans to participate freely and at mass scale. And I think when you add in that there's this extremely exercised portion of the electorate, you, you could call them the resistance for shorthand, but they tend to be college educated. They tend to be suburbanites. Maybe they used to be Republicans. Maybe they now call themselves independents, but they cannot stand Donald Trump. They've been voting in every imaginable election at numbers that are just way, way above other groups. It's why Democrats have been doing well in these special elections. And I think the short version of it is these voters don't have much to vote on in the Democratic primary, are free to vote in the Republican primary, cannot stand Donald Trump. And so they're turning out in extremely and uniquely large numbers in these Republican primaries. And it's why you see Trump losing the votes he loses. I don't think the story of uh, these primaries revealing new and massive weaknesses for Trump really holds up to scrutiny. I think largely what we're seeing here is a new manifestation of a phenomenon we've been pretty familiar with now ever since Donald Trump came on the scene. So I got to tell you, I'm not sure I totally agree with Steve Kornacki on this. Claire has some um, questions about the wizard. I have some questions. Um, I get it that where there are open primaries, you're going to have more votes against Trump because there are independents and Democrats who feel very, very strongly that they want to speak out against Trump directly. And so they're voting for Haley. But I don't think that goes away in November. I think this right. ultimately turns into a turnout operation for very enthusiastic anti-Trump voters and very enthusiastic anti-Biden voters. And I, I think us keeping the coalition together and paying close attention to every part of our coalition is really important. And persuading those people in swing states just how crazy Trump is, is all very important. But I just don't believe that it is a false sign that Trump has weakness, that he's getting these kinds of numbers against him. Okay. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, Michael Steele joins us for a Super Tuesday preview. Plus, we'll get his take on the shakeups at the RNC. Back in a moment. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome back. Uh, listen up, folks. If you haven't been paying attention, Super Tuesday is next week. Yeah, yeah, I know. We all know how it's going to turn out. 
But we still got to talk about it because it will kind of put the exclamation point on both parties' nominees as we head towards Kareen towards November. Oh, what an image, Claire. There is the inevitable rematch, but we can and are still learning important things from voters each week, each time they vote. And that is super true for Super Tuesday. So to help us get a sense of what we should be watching for, we ask our friend, our dear friend, the former mm-hmm. lieutenant governor of Maryland, former chair of the Republican National Committee and co-host of MSNBC's The Weekend. Watch it if you haven't. It's really good. Michael Steele is here today. Thank you much for being here, Michael. And I think it's time we place a bet. <laughs> Claire's going right to it. I love it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's t- let's do a bet on Hogan. Larry Hogan. Larry Hogan, uh, the former governor of Maryland, two term. Of Michael's and my great state of Maryland. Right, Jen, Jennifer. Yeah, absolutely. And 70% job approval to this day among Marylanders is running for the United States Senate. My estimation, Claire, is Hogan changes this race dramatically. The race before was a race between David Trohn, very successful businessman, now member of Congress, and our county executive, Angela Alsobrook. But Larry gets in the race, Claire, and changes the game. Now the Democrats Mm. have to ask themselves, between these two, who can beat Larry Hogan in a statewide race where he's sitting at 70%? And as everyone knows, that 70% is not Republicans. Maryland's a two-to-one state (laughs) Democrat. So if he's at 70% with Democrats, I think he's in a good stead. The early money is, if it's a head-to-head with also Brooks, he wins. If it's uh, a head-to-head with Trone, it's tied right now. So my bet is at the end of the day, Larry takes it. You don't mean it. I bet he doesn't. I bet he doesn't. I bet Trone's nominated. Trone is going to self-fund, which means it's not that much pressure on the DS because they're not going to have to fund it to the extent they would if Trone didn't win the primary. I know they're both good candidates. I have nothing against the county executive of your county. I think she's terrific. But I think Trone wins. And I think Trone beats him unless Larry Hogan does one thing, says he will not caucus as a Republican. Oh, yeah. Now, if he were to say that. Then he would win. Then he would then win. maybe he would win. But he, I just do not believe the people of Maryland. It's one thing to elect a moderate Republican as a governor and a chief executive. It's a whole nother deal to send him down there to do what Donald Trump wants him to do. And well, if he's not going to do what Donald Trump wants him to do, then he really can't caucus with the Republicans because they're all Trumpy now. I'm going to defer to you on on that aspect of it because you know the chamber well, you know the members well and the dynamics there. I would agree with your assessment about how Marylanders perceive federal candidates versus statewide candidates having run for federal office and had to go through that dynamic as a state official while running for federal office. So I get that. But here's the difference, I think, in many respects. Larry Hogan is very much cut out of his daddy's cloth. If folks remember their history, his dad was the first Republican to confront Nixon on Watergate. And so there's a lot of that about Larry in this race. There is nothing about Larry that says that he would tow Trump's line as a United States senator. Nothing about that. The caucus part, I think you're right, Claire. I think that's going to be a, a very important political decision for him to make. And mm-hmm. with McConnell stepping down, to your point, Claire, about the Trumpiness of the Senate, that's a legit thing. It is a real concern. Here's the other rub. The reality of it is right now, West Virginia is gone. The Republicans have picked up a seat. So the Senate is technically tied if you're looking at the state of play. Larry getting in this race 
is advantage Republicans. It makes the pressure on Democrats to pick up seats that they don't have right now that much greater. So here's the bet. If the Ravens make it to the playoffs next year and the Chiefs make it to the playoffs next year, whoever wins this bet has to find seats for the other. This is an excellent bet. Uh, You know what? I was going to offer a foodie bet, but I like that one. (laughs) Isn't that better? I was I was so gonna much go better. For, better than some crab cakes. I was gonna I was gonna no offer shit. crab cakes for your steaks, but no, I like that. No, 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 no. You find the seats if the wow. playoff game is in Baltimore. And I'll do the same. No, no, all absolutely. Right. All right. Sounds good. McCaskill right. does so, not fuck around, people. That is big. No. That's a there's that's the F word. But they, but they, they both have to be in the playoffs, right? Not one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, no, Darn. they both have to be in. Done. All right. Okay, so what are you watching for on Super Tuesday? Tell us what you're watching for. You know, it's interesting. It's almost to the point where it's anticlimactic in some respects. But there are going to be some dynamics there, I think, that are going to be important. And and largely the narrative is going to be focused on Nikki Haley and how she's performing. This is the last hurrah in the Republican primary where you will have states like Texas and Oklahoma that have open or quasi-open primaries. And so that means that Democrats and independents can vote in those primaries to help Nikki out, as we've seen in places like New Hampshire and South Carolina. But the difference is going to be, and it's going to be stark, is that you also have full-throated efforts by the Democrats to shore up President Biden's numbers in these primaries, particularly on the heels of the non-committed vote in Michigan this past week, where 100,000 voters voted for the other non-existent person. Claire and I are very skeptical that that was a bad thing for Biden, but we won't argue the point You know what? I'm going to share your skepticism, to be honest. I I, I think your instincts on that are right. And I think the media does a disservice because they like the drama and the and sort of the quasi blood on the floor effects of it. But I I think that helps Biden in ways that are are going to play out over the rest of the campaign. I can see it. But that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for what Nikki is able to do to justify her political existence beyond Super Tuesday. I think Super Tuesday is the final nail in a coffin that should have been closed and sealed up after New Hampshire. But I think she's, you know, she's going to persist. The Coke operation has cut off the money. So whatever cash she has stockpiled, then she's got to uh, make it work over the course of the states that are on the ballot in play on Super Tuesday. I just don't see it. But I'm watching to see dynamically where any strength she has in, in this Republican primary may lie. I don't think that it's there, but everyone keeps telling me it is. So I'll look for it. Um, a couple of things I would add just for listeners about big states that are next week. California, which has a major on the Democratic side, major Senate primary with Adam Schiff and then Steve Carvey, who Adam Schiff is running. Adam Schiff. Right. Ripping off a page of Claire McCaskill's sure is. Uh, playbook is letting everyone know that Steve Garvey is really conservative in an effort to try to get Republicans to vote for him so that he finishes second, which is how the California. So that's a big deal. North Carolina, that's a pseudo battleground that goes next week, too. And Virginia, I flag Virginia just because it's so important for Democrats to nail that state. And I think that the Biden campaign is looking at some of these primaries, those in particular, as a way to test their turnout operation. Right. Then feel good that that held up in Michigan, feel good that that held up in New Hampshire, 
which was a very hard thing to pull off given that they walked away from New Hampshire. So those are important. But like, but let me ask you one more thing about Haley. You know, last week she was like, I am staying in. Right. She seemed very committed. And I think she believed it in the moment. And she could continue to make this argument. But like once you're below 30 percent of the, getting 30 percent of the vote, it feels hard to sustain anything. Like, does it feel that way to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's like even like press attention, it's hard to sustain. It's hard to sustain any sort of moral authority. If yeah. she gotten 40 percent, and I feel the same way because there's no there there. The base is, is Trump. No one's looking for an alternative. Right. There is no alternative to play here. The, the base yeah. wants yeah. Trump. So the the sooner all of the political and media world understand that, the sooner we can get into the throes of what is going to be a very contentious, a very difficult election, particularly given the slow roll that the Supreme Court has now put on the January 6th case, which gums up the political calendar and calculus. So this little side drama with whether or not Nikki is going to be standing come the convention, it's just ridiculous at this point. And, and I just think it, it makes it harder for us to unpack some things that we're going to need to unpack later on. Michael, many times you check us in terms of how we view things, because obviously my politics have always been in the Democratic Party, as yours have been in the Republican Party and Gen 2. We're both big Ds. Check us if we're wrong here. But it feels like to me this IVF ruling in Alabama is going to have some real impact on November. I'm so glad you brought that up. I had dinner last night with a Republican House member and I brought up the IVF issue. And his thing was, well, my state is, you know, all in on abortion. He's, you know, obviously a conservative in a state where abortion is protected. And so I have to worry about it. I was like, dude, you're going to have to worry about it. Trust me, you're going to have to worry about it. You got Republicans. I mean, they can't do the backstroke fast enough away from their IVF positions that they took before the Ivy Alabama case. So yeah, this is, I mean, probably more so than abortion itself, if you know what I mean, Um, as a, as a piece of that overall discussion, this one is, and then they're going to be in this position where they're going to have this hard line on embryos, right. And all of that. But then at the same time, they're going to say, well, we want everybody like, you know, Tuberville. Well, everybody should be allowed to have babies, right? (laughs) Well, wait a minute. You guys are in odd positions here on this issue because in the one instance, you're telling us that women have no control over that in terms of whether or not, you know, because of their health, they have to make a tough decision. And then here, when they want to create a family, you're telling them, well, you can't do that because, you know, if anything happens to that embryo, you're liable. (laughs) Okay. We're going to take a quick break, but will you please stay with us sure. and let Jen and I talk to you about what we think the leadership in the Senate might look like in the wake of Mitch McConnell's announcement yesterday. Absolutely. Stay and tuned. the RNC. And the RNC. Te presentamos a la familia Rubio. Ellos hacen todo en familia. Rompecabezas, viajes a Walmart, ejercicios, cocinamos, todo. Y cuando supieron que la farmacia de Walmart tiene vacunas para todas las edades, desde HPV hasta neumonía, pues nos fuimos en familia a vacunarnos. Y de una vez hicimos nuestras compras. Like, obvio, Abu. <risas> Protege a tu familia con vacunas para todos. Haz una cita hoy con los farmacéuticos expertos de Walmart Pharmacy. Bienvenido a una farmacia más simple. Bienvenido a tu Walmart. Sujetas a disponibilidad y ley estatal aplicable. Se aplican restricciones según la edad. Pregúntale a tu farmacéutico por detalles. You can start your day off right when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. 
Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome back. Michael Steele is still with us. He's the former lieutenant governor of Maryland, former RNC chair and co-host of MSNBC's The Weekend on Saturdays and Sundays mornings. Michael, thanks for letting us keep him around for round two. Tell us, so Ronna McDaniel, gone from your old job as RNC chair. Tell us what you think is going on there. What's your reaction to it? Does it matter? Everybody's freaking out that Trump is taking over the party. It does kind of happen, honestly, when, you know, you're the nominee. He's not quite the nominee. Laura, Trump, all of it. Go. Yeah, no, it's the decapitation of the party that I knew and, and, and led at every level, county, state and, and nationally. When you install a election denying state party chairman, your daughter in law and a political operative who is sympathetic to and a big sycophant regarding all things Trump on the heels of four hundred and fifty four million dollars worth of money he's got to pay out. The biggest cash cow in the room is the RNC. And this is not something that we're unfamiliar with. We saw it play out over the four years of his term in office and subsequent to that. And Rana got to the point where she weighed, quite honestly, Jennifer, whether or not she could do any more of that. I don't mm -hmm. think she could. I, I've heard some conversations around her decision that she just refused to turn the party over to Trump completely like that and could not face forward, go out and pretend that she's not going to have to direct cash to his legal fund. So I think that was part of it. Trump clearly fell out of love with her because she was telling him no more than yes. And now he's got a bunch of yes people around him. So look, if you're a candidate running for the United States Senate or you're a candidate running for Congress or a state legislative race, the RNC is going to be of very little help to you. State parties are imploding. Of the 168 members of the RNC that make up the RNC, 144 of them are Trump acolytes. They were elected during this period of Trumpism and they're MAGA. And so she's looking around like a lot of members of Congress in the Republican caucus looked around and said, oh, my God, I'm in on a ship of fools. And it was it was better to jump into the deep end of the ocean and swim away as best they could than to stay on that ship and drown with them. Well, speaking of captains, it and sounds like ships. to me that McConnell took a dive yesterday. He did. Not that I was surprised. I knew he wouldn't be leader again, but I was a little surprised about the timing. I'm anxious to get your sense, Michael, but my sense was that he saw the movement against him as gaining steam mm. and realized that if he removed himself from it, that he had a better chance of someone taking his job come November that is not part of crazy town. Yeah. That he has a better chance of avoiding a Haggerty or a Holly or a Ted Cruz or any of those that have really been a thorn in his side. Is that your take? And do you see anybody as a favorite at this point? I agree with your take there and put a pin in it because of your experience in the chamber, knowing Mitch McConnell as you have over the years of your service in the Senate and your network inside the Senate, which is phenomenal on both the Republican and Democratic side. I think you're spot on. And I think the other thing for McConnell was, you know, he's, he's a guy who is someone who understood in a very granular way, not just the operation of the Senate, but the dignity of being a senator. And watching the Rand Paul, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, MAGA circus come to town and slowly 
eviscerate that dignity and break it down. He, like Rana and many others, said, no, I can't do any more of this. And given what he had accomplished, certainly in his battles against Democrats on Merrick Garland and and other very uh, controversial and contentious political maneuvers, I think he felt that, okay, I've set the cornerstone for the GOP. Now it's up to them to either build on it or to tear it apart. And so he got out. Going forward, the question becomes, who's next? And I think you're going to see a little bit of a battle. You're going to see someone like a Ted Cruz, maybe, or Mike Lee try to position. I think, the for me, the lead dog right now is John Thune. I, I think John Thune will bring a little bit of that McConnell kind of vibe, but also bring a, a freshness to the leadership. Now, whether or not he can contend with the emerging MAGA faction within the Senate and avoid the Senate becoming more like the House is going to be important. It will also matter in terms of, as we we talked about before the break, what the composition of the Senate leadership looks like should the Republicans be able to pick up a majority and that battle for who actually will get the votes for majority leader. And I think you're going to see a lot of that, a lot of dirt flying. There's right now being staged a big battle inside my party over what happens after Trump. And by after Trump, that's with a Trump win. So even if Trump wins in November, Mm -hmm. you're still going to have this battle uh, with a lot of Republicans who will either, and I suspect largely, just jump ship and get out. And so a lot of that will go away. And then you're talking about a pure populist, nationalist-oriented Republican Party running up against what will be the only standard bearer for democracy and democratic values, which will be the Democratic Party. And that's going to create a real interesting dynamic politically. Claire, it sounds like you and Michael both think that the timing that McConnell left, you know, announced yesterday to ward off a threat to his leadership But do you think also, because I was after, just after he had the meeting about the Ukraine funding in the Oval Office the previous day, where everybody beat up on Mike Johnson about trying to get the Ukraine funding done, and then the next day McConnell announces that he's leaving as a leader, I was like, oh, no, I got a lot to say about how much, what Mitch McConnell has done to democracy, but at least he's effective at getting things done. So this might actually position him to be more effective in the short term. I think what he's going to do, I don't know if you agree, Michael, but I think what he's going to do is focus on keeping his party from withdrawing on the world stage. Listen, he cares about two or three things in this order, power, party, and foreign policy. Oh, wait, and making sure there's plenty of dark money. He, he hates campaign finance laws. So these are kind of his legacies. And now what he really cares about is making sure there is still a United States presence in the world because he has read history and he knows what happens when America withdraws. I think what you're going to see him do is focus entirely on national security issues and foreign policy between now and the end of his term uh, at the end of 2026. Agree with that. I think because that allows him to off-ramp the politics. He doesn't have to deal with the drama around uh, the budget conversation, which we're confronting right now. I've had, again, some House Republican members who are angry and frustrated say that the leadership, meaning the, the Freedom Caucus and Mike Johnson, want to barrel headlong into a government shutdown. They like the politics of that. They want it to happen. 
They're going to offer up poison pill amendments and bills to force the Democrats into that position to have to wrangle and try to get splattered with their bad policy. And McConnell wants none of it. As you notice, he's not been vocal nor taken a strong leadership role in the budget discussions. He keeps saying rightly, hey, budgets originate in the House and they send us and we, then we go from there. So he's doing that. So I think the foreign policy thing for him is mega. It is the most important thing to get done. He is now freed up to make the case and argue vociferously for Ukraine aid and support. And I think you're going to see that maybe not so much with him out front at every turn, but you're going to see the movement among the Republicans in the Senate in that direction over the next few months. Okay. Last question. What's your assessment of leadership on the House side, air quotes, and if Mike Johnson will survive these next few weeks of uh, trying to avoid a shutdown, trying to get Ukraine funding done? It's a jump ball right now. Uh, yeah. I think, I think that's right, Johnson yeah. is sitting there saying, how long do I want to be speaker? And if he cuts the deal on the budget to avoid a shutdown, he's dead. If he cuts a deal on the border, he's dead. So the question is, what kind of political life does he really want to have? Because all of those things will land at his feet and he and the Republican caucus will be blamed for. You cannot put the border on Joe Biden. Sorry, you cannot put the border on Democrats because, honestly, the Democrats gave up a lot in the border deal. They basically signed off on what Trump wanted when he was president, much to their chagrin, which would have created a real progressive challenge on the left for Joe, but he was prepared to go and have that fight for the broader, bigger purpose. And the Republicans said, no, don't want to do that. So I, I think you're looking at a dead man walking and he just needs to figure out which coffin he wants to go lie in. Well, with that, we know his name, Mike Johnson. We just buried him. You're the best, Michael Steele. We are Thank so happy so to much. have you. Thank you for hanging out with us for a little while this morning. I appreciate it. Love being all with you and looking forward to coming back because we're going to have a lot to talk about over the we next few months. <laughs> we are. So closing thoughts. Super Tuesday's on Tuesday, but the states that have mattered, the states that are deciding the nominees are done. And I think that if I'm on the Biden team, I'm looking and say, we had some hard things to do that could have gone wrong. They did well in South Carolina, and then they got the turnout operation in Michigan working so that a lot of people would turn out to vote for him. The uncommitted, you know, campaign did what they wanted to do, but it didn't manifest itself into a, a big showing. And meanwhile, on the Trump side, they have revealed a lot of vulnerabilities in these states. Yeah, I agree. And I, I'd rather be us than them. How to win 2024. I'd rather be us than them. That's the big Pluff thing. I was I'm, I always wait for that at the end with David Pluff was debriefing us on the 2012 reelect. He'd say terrible things. And I'm like waiting for it. Wait, wait, wait. When is he going to say? But I'd rather be yes than them. There you go. So we hope to see you tonight in 92nd Street Y for a special live How to Win event with Katie Turr. If you want to join us online tonight, there's still time. Go to 92ny.org to learn more. And the link is also in our show notes. Thanks so much for listening. As always, if you have a question for us, you can send it to howtowinquestions at nbcuni.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 646-974-4194 and we might answer it on the pod. And remember to subscribe to MSNBC's How to Win newsletter to get weekly insights on this year's key races sent straight to your inbox. Visit the link in our show notes to sign up. This show is produced by Vicki Vergolina and Jessica Schrecker. 
Paul Monsi, Catherine Anderson, and Bob Mallory are our audio engineers. Our head of audio production is Bryson Barnes. Aisha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio. And Rebecca Cutler is the senior vice president for content strategy at MSNBC. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts and follow the series. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.